people love diagnoses. They love the idea that they can put their hat on a, on a hanger and say, okay, this is what I have. But the reality is it doesn't matter what you call it. What am I going to do about it? Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I'm tuning in from Las Vegas today across the country from my sister, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hey, babe. Hey, Nays. <laughs> good to see How you. How you doing? Good, good. And we have a guest coming on today. We have Dr. Joel Rosen, who we met at, well, I guess we didn't technically meet at Biohacking Congress in March. I heard him speak, and then I connected on Instagram with him later that day because I was really curious about the topic that he talked about, which was a lot around the myth of iron and copper issues with deficiencies, toxicities, and then also a lot about the myths around adrenal fatigue and saying how the lack of oxygen in the body is really one of the major issues with people that suffer from fatigue. And I just really appreciated that he had kind of a different spin on a lot of things. And in the biohacking world, he was really the only one that whole weekend talking about these things. So anyways, I connected with him. We have a lot of mutual friends and we decided let's do a podcast swap. So we had the opportunity to be on his podcast and then we returned the favor today. And it was a great conversation. I think anyone that is suffering with fatigue, you're still feeling like that adrenal fatigue diagnosis really resonates with you. I would definitely recommend checking out his work. He has lots of great videos and podcasts about the topic. So we talk a lot about lab testing today, and I think it can get really confusing for the average person. And I will just say, keep an open mind when you're listening to this and just know that it's very personal. Like I would really recommend you work with a practitioner, you know, like Lauren and I, or Dr. Rosen to get the personalized lab testing, get the genetic testing that you need and have a personalized plan. Don't feel like it's just like, you know, one plus two equals three. That's the answer for me kind of thing. Just know it's always about that personalization, right? That's what we talk about all the time in biohacking. Yeah. I love these conversations because I think there's always motivation to kind of step back and question and really make your own, form your own opinion. I feel like we're force fed so much information through the media or through Instagram, wherever it is, you get your information and biochemistry and genetics are really complicated and we have to keep trying to put the pieces together. And I think Dr. Rosen's really doing a great job of that, of saying, you know, that may not be true, which is just always such a great question to ask in our, in our lives. Like when there's a certain narrative, something like adrenal fatigue or, you know, a mental emotional thing, you know, like I'm not good enough. Is that true? <laughs> Let's just start there. Then kind of opens up into endless possibilities. So I, I love conversations like this because we get to dive deeper and, and say like, there may be more to the story. Yep. I think there's always more to the story. <laughs> We're going to keep learning more and more. What is that? Oh, there's some, oh gosh, there's a musical. There's this song that's coming to my head. The story goes on. <laughs> Never mind. I can't sing it. So it doesn't uh, matter. 
<laughs> the story that never ends. <laughs> this is a story song that, that never, never ends. ends. No, not that, but okay, that works too. <laughs> All right, we'll go with that one for now. Awesome. Yeah. All right, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Joel Rosen. He is the founder of the truth about adrenal fatigue.com. His mission is to expose the truth about adrenal fatigue and burnout in both men and women. And this is so we can empower a hundred million people to go from exhausted to energized. The truth is adrenal fatigue goes deeper than just the adrenals. Dr. Joel's signature 5P program to create energy on demand encompasses purpose, production, programming, pain, and patterns. When all five are addressed, transformation into all day energy is the result. I want all day energy. All right. Let's find out how we can do that from Dr. Rosen. Let's bring him on. Welcome, Joel, to the Biohacker Babes. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, we're really excited for this conversation. Um, I actually had the pleasure of hearing you first speak at uh, Biohacking Congress back in March. And I have to tell you a funny story. I saw on the schedule your uh, title had something to do with copper. And it was right after lunch. And I remember I'm like, I got to go back. I want to hear this doctor talk about copper. I'm like so curious to hear what he has to say. And so I ran in there. I got to hear you speak. And it was awesome. I was just like blown away because no one was talking about iron and copper the way you were that day. So that was our first introduction. And it was such a pleasure to meet you. And we also had the opportunity to be on your podcast, which was super fun. But now the the roles have switched. We get to kind of throw all our questions at you today. So we have a lot to cover. I think the iron and copper, we were saying, let's maybe hold off till later in the episode. But I think to kick it off, you really are an expert around the topic of maybe I say, quote unquote, adrenal fatigue and the myths of that. And Lauren and I both went through very similar health journeys as you did, you know, about 10 years ago, we were self-diagnosing adrenal fatigue. You know, we're checking off all the symptoms, the brain fog, the fatigue, needing to sleep a lot. Um, but there was just so much misinformation and you are out there spreading the word on what's really going on with a lot of these chronic fatigue issues. So maybe to kick us off a little backstory, like what's the controversy around adrenal fatigue and what are we missing here? Yeah. Well, first, thanks so much for the kind words. Uh, I was nervous for that, for that presentation and I can't take the, the ownership of the copper iron, as you know, Morley Robbins has done a lot of work in that area. And I just was like a caveman to fire when I read his book, because it was so many gaps being filled in. But as far as the myth goes, I think we're so inundated with multitasking. You just look at your browser windows as an example of how many things we're doing at one time. And we're not, we're not really engineered to, to multitask at that level. In fact, studies show we, we are less efficient at multitasking than just boringly signing, checking things off one at a time. And when we spread ourselves too thin on top of the fact that we have the pandemic and social isolation and you have uh, such a toxic environment, the stressors are unending. And, and I, I look at, at it as we have a demand and supply problem. We just don't produce energy at the level we need to. And when we're stressed with it, we think about stress. And Hans Selye was the original, one of the original pioneers in the stress field. And he really tainted the, the term adrenal fatigue, in my opinion, because he said there was an alarm phase, which is true. Like you're, you're in a heightened alarm. Think of calling 911 and you, then the emergency bells go. And then you have the, 
the resistance phase where your body's able to mount a certain amount of responses that is resistance to the stress. And then eventually it gets into what's called the exhaustion phase. And that really marred the term because the adrenals exhausting very rarely happen. And in the 1850s, the medical curriculum had a diagnosis called Addison's disease where the doctor Addison determined that the adrenal gland isn't able to mount a response when the door is being knocked on by the pituitary sending the signals, and that's called adrenal insufficiency. So in the traditional medical school and in the literature and in the peer-reviewed journals, there's no nomenclature for adrenal fatigue. It's adrenal, it's adrenal insufficiency, it's black or white, and there is no shades of gray. So when you do go and see a doctor, they haven't learned it in their curriculum, like a lot of things they haven't learned. And that's a whole other story, but it, it ends up being a tell for them to like, oh, here comes that malingerer or that person that is seeking attention or is the difficult client and they are the internet doctor. And it just already brings up the defense and doctors for when you come in there with a diagnosis that's not accepted. And the reality is, is that the mechanics of the stress response and the doors being knocked on and the adrenals answering the call, and then the cells using the, the hormones that the adrenals make really dictate the fact that the problems that occur with the stress response occur outside of the adrenals. It, 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 the, the hormone signaling, the resistance, the conversion, the re-signaling of the whole mechanism, heat shock proteins. There's so many things that our body does that preserve our energy so we don't go into a, a sort of an emergency response that doesn't entail the adrenals not making enough cortisol. So the controversy really comes down to the fact that it's bad terminology and it's incomplete science in terms of what really happens when we have a demand and supply problem. So are we getting stuck just because people are, are getting this label and then we kind of stop investigating? I mean, we're just such huge believers of continuing to be curious and kind of lay out the big uh, puzzle because there's a million pieces. So what do we need to do to help empower people? Is it just the narrative? Is that where we're gonna, kind of getting bottlenecked? I think that's that's a good point for sure, Lauren, is, is that the the nomenclature has to change. And, and there's a, a really great researcher, PhD, Thomas Gilliam, or Guillaume. He's got the Point Institute, and he talks a lot about this, about wanting to educate doctors and, and the, I guess, the, the patient together to give us new ways to discuss what's going on. Because there is a phenomena of being burnt out and being exhausted. And, and not having enough energy to meet the daily, daily demands. And a lot of dominoes fall as a result of that. And the person's not crazy. And a lot of the blood tests that we're doing isn't validating what's physiologically going on. So then we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, okay, you mustn't have a problem. So it's educating. It's, it's new nomenclature. And it's really empowering the, the patient to know, hey, you're not crazy that there are some real things that are going wrong and people love diagnoses. They love the idea that they can put their hat on a, on a coat on a hanger and say, okay, this is what I have. But the reality is, is doesn't matter what you call it. 
what am I going to do about it? And that's where we empower our clients like you guys do. And it's multidisciplinary. It's an integrated approach. It, there's a lot of uh, mental or, or sort of the, the, the cognitive uh, belief system that we put around things and the day-to-day activities that we do as per your podcast that empower us to be able to be victimized not just from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint of not being validated as well. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the poor adrenals, they're like the hor- hormonal version of the planets, like Pluto. It's like, is it a planet? Is it not? It's like adrenals. Are we paying attention to it or is it not? It's like, <laughs> right, well, it's right. the beginning of the conversation. I know all three of us are big fans of the Dutch test, which I think is a fabulous start to a conversation. And the problem with a lot of standard lab tests is we're just taking that single point cortisol in the morning, which causes a lot of problems. So if we're looking broadly at the scope of (laughs) adrenal fatigue or what people probably just feel as burnout, which we know is a million different things, how do we zoom like way, way out and look at like top offenders about why you may be feeling this regardless of what the diagnosis is? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. So let's continue with the Dutch test. I do think that the Dutch test is a very valuable tool especially if you're able to do what they call the cortisol awakening response, where you're able to see that initial rise of that cortisol within the first 45, 60 minutes of waking up. And when you do a traditional saliva test, which drives me crazy in the sense that (laughs) it represents 5%, one to 5% of your total cortisol output, and you're doing it at specific times, six o'clock, 12 o'clock, five o'clock, and your schedule as a third shift worker or a second shift worker or a night owl or an early bird isn't going to reflect the specific, I guess, round holes that you got to fit into. So, so starting with the Dutch test, you can see the cortisol awakening response. And there's plenty of studies that show if that's blunted, there's a major challenge with morbidity and there's a a higher correlation with mortality, with not having an awakening response. And then on top of that, what I really like about it is, is there a difference between the free fraction versus the metabolized cortisol? So the metabolized cortisol is How much do you output in terms of cortisol clearance? And there's a lot of factors that can impact that. But just as a whole, pound for pound, from the taking the test at dinner time the night before till two hours when you wake up the next day is not quite 24 hours. But in that given time slot, how much cortisol are you metabolizing and clearing? That would be considered the amount of what I tell people. That's your salary that you make for the day. Whereas the free fraction is how much do you have spending money? And there's not always a correlation. Like you'll see on a Dutch test, if you do enough of them, that some people could have really high free fraction, which on a saliva test, that would say, oh, my cortisol level is super high. I need to take uh, what's the, it's the phosphatidylserine to lower that. And it's almost like a reflex high, let's take that low, let's take this. But then when you look at the metabolized cortisol and it shows that, oh my goodness, you're clearing a lot of cortisol and you're giving that person something to boost their levels because it looked like it was low or it looked like it's high, but you're not comparing it to what was their salary for the day. You're making huge mistakes. On top of that, being able to see how your stress response plays out in your sex hormones, your testosterone, your androgens, your estrogens, how are you clearing them out? So the Dutch test is a great, great framework, but it, it also reminds me of the one client that got mad at me because she was saying, well, why? And, and I said, the test doesn't tell you why. 
it tells you what. Basically, it's the thermometer. Like if I look at the thermometer outside in a pool and it's in the 60s, the reason why is because there's no sun, there's not a heater in the pool, there's a lot of environmental cues that are telling you to do that. And that's where you and I, as the provider and the patient, have to talk this out and say, What's your marriage like? What's your what's your living conditions like? What's your family life? What's your purpose and, and meaning? What's your financial situation? What are all these things? Because that's going to tell the complete story once you have the objective stuff. So it's basically balancing the objective with a good test like the Dutch test with the subjective of, okay, let's talk about if this is matching with what you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, the Dutch definitely opens up to ask more questions. Um, I had actually a recent client where I basically came to the conclusion that she was under a long-term chronic stress and same thing. She's like, well, what is it? (laughs) So we had to ask all those questions. We want answers. Like you tell me what's going on. Yeah. Um, And I experienced that too. Like my free cortisol was low. My metabolized cortisol was low. And it was like, well, what was going on? And when I was like really in the thick of being really fatigued and brain fogged, just like you said, I was looking for that diagnosis. Oh, I want, do I have Addison's? Do I have hypothyroidism? Like I just wanted to grasp onto something, but at the end of the day, it ended up being maybe less sexy things. It was like my circadian rhythm was off, you know, too much blue light exposure. I had Epstein-Barr reactivation, like all these, like all these puzzle pieces that I had to put together. And it wasn't in traditional medicine, like one diagnosis, like given to me on a golden plate kind of thing. So I appreciate you saying that. So I'm curious if someone is feeling this way, that all the ways we're talking about, what are some of the big causes of that fatigue that you're seeing when you start to like peel off the layers? Yeah, it's a great question. So what, what I do a lot of is a lot of genomic test interpretation. So I look at a saliva test and we have our own kit that we use. Although if someone's had the 23andMe or Ancestry test, we can extract that raw data. And I always tell them, they say to me, oh, it's, it's done so long ago. I said, actually, the longer it, it has been done, the better, because they haven't gotten rid of a lot of the gene snips that they on the second or fourth or fifth, or I don't even know if they're on version six yet, but they get rid of a lot of the important genomics. And what I tell them is, you know, if you were born 200, 300 years ago, these things wouldn't have been a problem. These genetic SNPs that you have, or these altered efficient enzymes that it's not a one-off gene. It's the way that they interact with each other and the way they interact with the environment and our nutrition that really create the perfect storms or the the weak links in the chain breaking, if you will. And so I would have to say it's the the bombardment of environmental toxins that we ubiquitously get exposed to on a day-to-day basis from EMF lights or EMFs to um, fluorescent lights to pesticides and sprays to to people flushing their medications and polyesters in our water supply. I mean, I hate to be the Debbie Downer, but it, it's a real thing in terms of Toxic soup. that's yeah. And and what was a game changer for me was really okay. We understand that the HPA axis stress impacts the HPA axis, and stress is so multi-dimensional, as you know, and it could just be perceived like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so much trouble when my, you know, when my partner finds out, whatever it is. But mast cells that stimulate the HPA axis 
the mast cells or our immune system is stimulated by all of these environmental cues. So we're constantly having our on button for our HPA axis to constantly be turned on. So being aware of those, and I would say if I'm a business consultant to your body, I'm not going to necessarily look at sales. I'm going to look at ridiculous expenditures and let's just slash those right from the get-go. So I know you guys are big into that. Let's look at your cookware and are you using plastics and can you get them out of there and put them in, in glass uh, containers and let's look at your water supply and let's look at the air you're breathing and let's get you outside in the sun and let's learn how to breathe effectively and let's get your mineral levels up and not, not sexy stuff, right? I mean, just stuff that's common sense stuff when you realize that you go to bed earlier you you get more activity and movement you eat healthier all of a sudden the the biggest biohackers hrv goes up and their sleep scores go up and their readiness goes up and what were you doing you were doing common sense stuff right so it really is some sometimes the the non-sexy common sense stuff that decreases the the demand and will by by an, an effect of decreasing the demand increase your supply because you're not wasting it as much yeah, totally. Hey, biohackers, Renee here. Our friends over at Transcriptions, the ones who make one of our favorite nootropics called Blue Canatine, also famous for all those blue tongue photos we post, they have actually come out with a new product to help reduce anxiety and stress and optimize sleep called TroCalm. We had Dr. Scott Scherer from Transcriptions on the podcast back in October episode 114, if you want to go back and check it out, where he shared the science behind each ingredient that went into this formula. The blend of kava, CBG, CBD, and GABA provides a powerful punch to help you relax. It's pretty cool because you can start with just a quarter trochee during the day to ease some anxiety, or you can even take a full trochee before bed for a great night of sleep. I personally love taking it before bed. I sleep like a baby when I do that. So if you or anyone you know struggles with chronic stress, any anxiety or trouble sleeping, head over to transcriptions.com and check it out. We will put the link for their website in today's show notes so it's easy for you to find. And don't forget to use code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 10%. All right, let's get back to the show. The mast cell issue. So are you saying that this is a bigger issue today because of all the environmental toxins? Yeah, I mean, mast cells, and there's research that shows us glutamate from glyphosates, uh, reducing our bacteria's ability to lower glutamate or glycine disruption from glyphosates or dopamine because we have our cell phones on notification. And anytime we do a post, we want to look for that like, or I just wanted to do that 24 hour prime. And I know that I have a, a something in the mail or someone responded to an email or I'm 24 accessible, or I have mold exposure or there's EMFs or the list is endless. And all of those things stimulate our mast cells, stimulate our immune system, stimulate our HPA axis, where I think it's gone beyond that hormetic stress of a little bit of exposure. It's just constantly on all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. So where do you start with people? Because this is a lot of information. There's a lot of lab tests. There's a lot of non-sexy, not fun things that we can start to change. Um, I see with people, you know, a, we all need the same foundational things to reduce our oxidative stress or inflammation. So we could say everyone kind of needs the foundational strategies, but a lot of people need some lab testing to get motivation to actually see, like, I need to change because 
I get a lot of clients who are like, I'm healthy. I'm not stressed. <laughs> well, perceived rate of stress or, you know, healthiness is so relative compared to what maybe your biochemistry will say. So where do you start with people? Is the genomics you know, at the top? Blood yeah, chemistry? it is. It, it is. The reason why Lauren is because I, I, I look at it as the analogy is like I'm Aquaman and I have this antenna and unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you choose to look at it, it is that I don't get any common fish anymore. My fish are, and I'm sure you see this too, where the clientele is more and more sick. There's so many m- different variables going on. It's like that perfect storm of, you can't write a novel that has all of this craziness going on with their post-traumatic stress upbringing and their moldy house and the fire that they had and the four car accidents and their, you know, so I, they've been to so many doctors already on, and they're, I'm the, usually the last doctor to the party. And so I, they're like this, well, what are you going to tell me that I haven't done already? And I'll, I'll say, well, let's look at your genomics. Oh, I've already done that. I have MTHFR. And it's, it's like MTHFR is one gene of 23 plus or minus thousands of genes. And I actually don't really even look at it to be, to be quite honest with you. So, it, and, and doctors, well, we don't look at genomics. We don't, we don't believe in that. It's the it's the mental software with the genetic test. And what I mean by that is it's the roadmap. So it's the blueprint. We open it up on the table. We, we put X is where we are now. Y is where we want to get to. And we want to chart that course. And sometimes there's no roads that go straight through. So we got to turn left and turn right to turn left and turn right to get back on track. And one of my mentors, Bob Miller, says it's like 3D chess game played underwater. And ultimately, that's what it is. You have the genomics that you have that are before the, the, the reaction that you're looking for, that are after the reaction that you're looking for, that are adjacent to the reaction that you're looking for. You have inhibitors that slow down the reaction that are environmental, and you have promoters that speed up the reaction that are environmental. You have cofactors that are nutritional or mitochondrial. So once you understand that, it's not the gene that you're really looking at. It's all the factors that environmentally are not being done or should be done that don't allow you to make a straight route to the to the destination that you want to go to. So that's the starting point for me. And then beyond that, it is the iron story in terms of Everyone is not respiring at the cellular level effectively, or another way of saying that is everyone who I deal with, that is the perfect storm client that's seen 15 different doctors and no one is giving them any answers that doesn't have enough energy to get through the day, isn't making enough energy to get through the day. They're not producing ATP effectively by combining the food they eat with the air they breathe to produce ATP and water. So let's look at the iron dynamics in their blood work. So once we have that and the genomics, now we can start to fill in the gaps. Wow. Can you just clarify what in the genomics that you're really looking at and making decisions on? Because you're mentioning like a ton of epigenetic factors. So what are you seeing in the genomics? Right. So, right. And it's a great question. So um, iron, iron metabolism, or we call Fenton reactions until proven innocent. So as far as that means, what that means is you're either from epigenetically, which everyone isn't getting enough bioavailable copper from the soils that we're eating. Um, but on top of that, they may have challenges in the, in the protein synthesis of transporters for copper 
or being able to allow copper to get into the cell or being able to convert vitamin B, beta carotene into vitamin A or being able to export iron out of tissues or transport iron across tissues or recycle iron. There's so many different or clear out hydrogen peroxide, uncouple nitric oxide, glutamate clearance. There's also what they call NADPH oxidase enzyme, which is what stimulates mast cells, histamine, gluten, mold, antioxidants, detox pathways, all the different phases. It gets, it gets a little more elaborate, but I, the big ones would be histamine, glutamate, nitric oxide, iron oxidation, and then antioxidant synthesis. Those are the main ones that we really look at. So you're looking at the predisposition for those. And then are you correlating with blood chemistry? Correct. So exactly. So, the, and, the, and, and this is a good segue into the whole copper iron thing. So I look at it as there's three main ways that iron dysregulation assumed guilty until proven otherwise with everyone that has an, a, a fatigue problem presents. So ideally you have, let's say for women, their iron should be a hundred and men should be 120 on the lab from a serum iron perspective. On the lab ranges, I think it's 20 to 140 for women and maybe say 30 to 180 for men. So what from a functional standpoint, from a lab standpoint. So, so what I'll do is I'll see one of the three patterns where iron is dysregulated until proven otherwise. Does it look like it's deficient with the other markers in the blood? Does it look like it's normal with other markers in the blood or does it look like it's excessive? So those are the three main patterns, but it's stuck in the tissues. Nonetheless, if we don't have enough bioavailable copper, you're more, you're not going to have the ability to move the iron out of tissues and attach it to oxygen and deliver it to your cells to combine it with the food that you eat to produce ATP and water. And as a result, you're going to create oxidative stress. But when you look at those markers and you see how is it presenting from a blood value and then what are the genomics, now you can say, hey, you're not converting vitamin A from beta carotene effectively, or your iron transporters or the only iron exporter in the genes are polymorphic, or you're not able to recycle that iron. Because what's really important is when the, when the red blood cell dies, if it makes it to 90 days, the iron doesn't die. The iron needs to be recycled. 95% of the iron in our body needs to be reused. But if you don't have the available vital nutrient, which is called NADPH, that gets depleted because of all the mast cells that are being overstimulated, then you're not going to recycle those red blood cells. What happens to the iron? It's got to be sequestered. It goes in the endometrium. You see endometriosis. You see fibroids. You see cysts. And you look at the blood and you say, oh, you're deficient. There's not a lot of boats in the ocean. But then you do this and you say, oh, my gosh, there's thousands of boats in the ocean. So just because we don't have iron in the blood doesn't mean we don't have it in the body. So it's a bit more complicated than I explained. But to your point, you look at the genomics, you see how the map is sort of playing out where the possible roadblocks or detours are going to be. And then when you actually drive in the car and you get on the highway, AKA blood work and other real-time objective markers, you start to correlate where the map said there would be problems and where the GPS says there is problems. 
that's when you have those hot spots. Okay. So you're starting with the genetic testing that's telling you, are they having issues with transporting the iron or recycling the iron, et cetera. And then you're looking at the labs and seeing you're looking at, I'm assuming total iron. Do you look at ferritin as well? Like what other ferritin, ferritin is huge. I mean, again, and, and I don't want to take responsibility for, for being the marker of all this. The whole reason I read cure your fatigue was because when I was going through all the genomics, every single time people are having problems with iron and copper and vitamin A. So ferritin is super important. 20 to 50 or 20 to 60 is the range that we put on the lab range for women. I want to say it's 30 to 120. And for men, it's 30 to 400. So I had a male. Ferritin? The, Sorry. For ferritin, for ferritin lab ranges. So I had a male who was 730. And I asked him, what did the doctor say? Well, he didn't seem too concerned about it. And that was above 400. I mean, that was 330 really above high. 400. And they still went, but we don't like to, some iron researchers don't like to see it more than, for ferritin, don't like to see it more than zero because it's considered an intracellular storage protein, which means by the time that it's showing up in the blood, it's overflowing and you're not, it shouldn't be in the blood. It's a storage protein. If iron isn't being handled effectively, you have this storage locker that sequesters the unbound iron in the mitochondria. By the time it's in the blood, you already have a metabolic issue going on. So look at TIBC, ferritin, percent saturation, transferrin, ceruloplasm, copper, copper to ceruloplasm ratios, vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc. Those are the hemoglobin, uh, hematocrit, red blood cells. Those are the main markers you'll look at to really get uh, an assessment on how their iron status is, is presenting. Is it looking like it's deficient? Is it looking like it's it's excessive or is it looking like it's normalized? And there'll be some shades of gray with all of that. Hmm. Certainly it's, lots of shades of gray and it's such a spectrum. So yeah, I want to learn more complex. about the ferritin because I've always been, I've never been taught that you don't want no ferritin. I and mean, we're like a big believer in like the Goldilocks rule and, and ranges like ferritin, in my opinion, has a role. And when there's really low ferritin, that could be a, a sign of liver dysfunction, oxidative stress. <laughs> And I want to explain this real quickly, which is, this is Morley taught. This Morley is really a a wealth of information. So when they started to fortify the foods with iron filings, which is a whole nefarious thing, if you ask me why they're doing that, but they're putting these iron filings in our food. And what used to be the surrogate marker for iron status up until the seventies, I want to say was hemoglobin. And 70% of our hemoglobin is, or iron is in our hemoglobin. But when we started putting these, uh, the fortification of iron in our foods, we started measuring ferritin as our surrogate marker for iron status because of the iron overload that we're getting in our body. So by the time it's in the blood, you have what's called light chain ferritin. And it's kind of like the shell casings of the bullet. And it's not a good status of, uh, like, I'll have some people that have FTL, ferritin light chain polymorphisms, which a lot of the times they show up as low ferritin. And to your point, Lauren, their doctors, oh, you're iron deficient. We got to give you iron transfusions. But are they, or, or are they able to even make the ferritin protein 
to have the storage locker to store the iron. Just because you don't have storage units in your neighborhood doesn't mean you have a lot of houses that don't have extra scrap to store. It just means you don't have a place to sequester it. So the problem is, is we're not being taught this. And as a result, it's very reductionistic. It's you have low ferritin, and that therefore you must have lower low iron metabolism in your body. We got to yell at that deaf person louder. We got to treat the labs. We don't care about how you're feeling, if it makes you feel sick or if it stuffs you up and you don't have bowel movements anymore. We don't care. We got to get those labs to those numbers. And it's based on a, a faulty premise in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even like the oxidative stress liver connection. So depends because you want to look at all of the markers, right? And really the the marker you should be looking at is your copper to ceruloplasm ratio. And that's giving you a better idea as to how you're mobilizing that iron. So you're looking at transferrin, you're looking at copper to ceruloplasm, you're looking at vitamin A to vitamin D, then you're looking at serum iron and then ferritin. And then ultimately you're asking Mrs. Jones how she's feeling too, right? So a lot of the times, yeah. So, um, but yeah, as far as the the liver goes, you'll see other markers that are metabolically indicative of challenges when you're looking at triglycerides to HDL ratios, or you're looking at liver enzymes that I think on lab tests above 40, and I've seen above 60 for ALT to AST, where functionally we don't want to see them above 25. GGTP is another good marker. You you, you know, there's a lot of good inferences that you could have with fatty liver or, or cholesterol issues or metabolic issues, fasting insulin, that the ferritin isn't meant to, to give you that information about. Yeah. I will say personally, my ferritin used to hover around like 12 to 20 and it's amazing the, the wide array of recommendations I would get from doctors. Some were like, Oh, 12 is fine. Oh, it should be 30. It should be 50. It should be a hundred. If you're fatigued, I was like, does anyone agree on this? So it's obviously yeah. a very complicated topic in defense. And I, what I would say is, and this is, isn't being taught in curriculum. And when I read Morley's book, it was like, Hey, I got a mission to help educate people and doctors and curriculums, but it's like, you're, you're knocking on the, on the, um, on the ivory towers that don't want to be brought, brought down. But when someone says that to them, the first thing I would say is, well, what do you think ceruloplasm level should be? And then let them look like a deer in headlights. And then that will be your tell that they have like a two and a three and they're raising and going all in on their poker sticks. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it will tell analogy. you for sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, what are your thoughts on hair mineral analysis? Do you think those are worth doing or blood is really I, I do. I do. And they teach that in, in, in the root cause protocol. I, I will say though, there are different levels, just like any art and the Zen of that art is there's black degree, black or fifth degree black belts, and there's white belts. And I think that th- that's such a area of controversy with mineral analysis, because it gets super deep into those, into those different balancing of, of uh, minerals that it can be very, very valuable. Um, but I would also say that if you're not trained on it, it could also be very misleading because the same thing, if you're not seeing it come out in the hair, you're saying it's not there, but that's not a true statement. 
right? And the analogy is with the kids that have autism and you look at their hair samples and they don't have as much metals in their hair as the other kids. And that's because they're not detoxing and you would assume they would have more, but they're not getting it out. So just like the ocean, when you're looking at it, the iron status and just saying it must be no boats in the ocean, you got to be careful that you don't make that wrong conclusion. And I think that comes down to just enough patient cases, enough theoretical information to know that you can't, it's another tool, right? It's a, it's another tool. We don't hang our hat on one tool, right? So to speak. Yeah. I will say what you just mentioned about the hair or hair mineral levels for autistic kids. There was a similar study on dentists. I don't know if you heard that back in the day, I think it was maybe in like the eighties, they tested for mercury levels in the hair of, you know, thousands of dentists and it was pretty low. So they came to the conclusion that dentists are not being exposed to too much mercury in the dental <laughs> place, but right. they also have the highest rates of suicide because <laughs> the mercury is probably, <laughs> it's all in their brain. It's not coming out of their hair. It's not so coming out. Right. You have right. to really look at all the pieces and yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, yeah. I like the quick silver test, the try test. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely better way. Yeah. To and, and you know, I, I don't do a lot of them and I, 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 you know, I, I would like to refer out, but the way I look at it is one of the biggest ahas for me is when you ask me about HPA axis and not only is the stress response causing the HPA axis to go off, but now it's mast cells causing it to go off in that process, that really important nutrient sensor NAD and NAD plus and NADPH and NAD plus or NADP plus, those are nutrient sensing pathways that tell us, hey, we need to make more energy or we need to divert the energy that we do have for this priority versus that priority. And, and what I've learned is when that NADPH is not available or it's being used for the war. So I, I say NADPH is like the, the army reservist. It, when it has its day job and it's not being called to war, it's producing income for its family. In this case, it's making ATP. It's recycling your antioxidants. It's recycling your neurotransmitters. It's helping you detox. It's making energy. But when it gets called to war, it leaves all of that and, and creates free radicals and stimulates mast cells and makes chemical messengers and makes mass and histamine. And it puts the defense on and allocates resources to that. And when that happens and we don't have any NADPH, we're no longer detoxing. So the beauty of the body is when you restore supply and demand, you don't have to overthink the body and let the body's intelligence say, hey, now that we've turned off the war signals and we allow that, that army reservists to go back to work, and now they're using the surplus of their income, they can invest that in detoxing. Hence, they can detox heavy metals glyphosates, mycotoxins, and you're really, you're, our job as a practitioner is to get out of the way of the intelligence of the body and modulate the demand and supply so that you have a surplus so your body knows what to do with it. Not me. I'm not egotistical enough to say, no body, you don't know what you need to do. I need to come in there and do a juice cleanse, or I need to come in there and do a heavy metal pull. I don't think we're ready for that. Let the body do that. And um, that's why I don't do that very much in terms of the, um, you know, when they do the provoked urine tests and that person's constitution is very weak and you're waking up the sleeping dogs 
and then you may be stimulating an autoimmunity. You got to be careful with sometimes testing to find out the information when, what are you going to do with that information? Is that going to help you put a game plan together? Does that make sense? Well, it depends on what the situation is. Some people need real tangible evidence that, you know, they have mold or that they have like a fungal overgrowth. Some people really need to see numbers on a page. And also a lot of times like symptomology could be pretty low in people. They're like, my digestion's fine. (laughs) Fine. Yeah. Fine. Fine. is like such a spectrum. So yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I agree too. A lot of times too, when you have someone who's constitutionally weak, they'll be negative on a lot of those tests, right? Cause they're just, they're not mounting an immune response. Their Lyme test, even though it's limited, isn't showing any antibodies or they're not pulling out any mycotoxins or they're not releasing any heavy metals. So that's why I always like to have more upstream basic tests that if a doctor understands how to interpret those correctly, can tell you, look, this is this is the surrogate marker to tell you what you're getting on the grade right now. To me, a lot of the times that's fasting insulin, right? I mean, you could tell so much by someone having insulin above eight, above 15, when they're that elevated. Okay. I already know that there is a, there is a, a major stress response in the body or you look for other, I mean, ferritin for me is a very good marker of, of status or, um, white blood cells, or sometimes just the basic CBC and, and CMP can be that test that, that finally lets that person know, okay, here's a major smoke signal right now. And until we get your constitution up, we're not ready to do this test or that test because it's not going to change my protocol right now. We just need to stop the bleeding, if you will. We need to get sure that your body's not paying rent and, and has all these p- old pieces of overhead and focus on those right now. And if we need one or two tests to validate that, great, but let's not go for the big bang. We found the needle in the haystack because we're not, chances are ready to do anything about that just yet. Hey, biohackers, Renee here. Just a brief interruption in today's episode to tell you about one of our favorite biohacks. And it's all about drinking wine. I personally love red wine, but anytime I drink commercial wine, it totally destroys my sleep and I feel like crap the next day. I can even see the impact on my biometrics, like on my bio strap or my aura ring, but I see increased body temperature, elevated heart rate, a major drop in heart rate variability, all really bad things that you don't want to see as far as sleep and recovery goes. So it's really just not worth it to me, even though I love the taste of wine. So once Lauren and I discovered dry farm wines, I was so excited because I felt like I could finally drink wine again. So dry farm wines offers organic biodynamic wine. It's sugar-free keto and paleo friendly. It's lower in sulfates and it's free of toxic additives. If you want to learn more about the dirty secrets behind the wine industry, especially like about the toxic additives they're throwing in there, you'd want to go back and check out episode 62, where we interviewed Todd White. He is the founder of Dry Farm Wines and gives so much great information about what's really going on with wine in the United States and why we should really be drinking safer, cleaner, healthier wines. So if you're ready to try this amazing clean wine that we love so much, Check out today's show notes for a special link where you can actually get an extra bottle with your first order for just one penny. All right. We hope you love the wine. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we have to like calm down the immune response before we can like target a specific mold species or like specific 
fungus, definitely start with the blood chemistry. So what are like the top three things foundationally that you'll do to kind of calm that and bring the body back into, I guess, a sense of safety and, and strong immunity? Yeah. And, and, and this is again, I, and I, <laughs> so I, I, to, to get into somewhat of the, the root cause protocol, I'm going to say this out loud. One time Morley got mad at me because he thought I wasn't promoting his, all the work that he had done. And I've more than transparently explained this is, this is from the root cause. Not that I didn't have my own knowledge and background before I read the root cause. And that's why I got into it. But one thing that I really like about it is stopping the things that are draining your bioavailable copper. Uh, and what that means is if you're taking iron supplements, stop. If you're taking anything that's fortified, stop synthetic B vitamins, stop. Uh, if you're taking vitamin D stop, and that's a really hard pill to swallow, but it, 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 it's calcifying and it will compete with vitamin A and vitamin A is really necessary to allow D to get into the cell. And vitamin A is necessary for iron to get out of tissues. So a lot of those stops, I'll have people stop vitamin D, calcium, zinc, synthetic B vitamins, uh, what else is molybdenum. There's a lot of, you can get those for free on the internet. I'll a lot of the time stop that. And then of course, diet, as you guys know, I mean, does this look like a real food? Are there nutritional qualities to this food? And probably most importantly is what I tell people is their oxygen consumption rate. Are they aware if you had a measure of how much oxygen you consume or use up based on your respiratory rate, are you aware of that? So when you get stressed out, what happens with your breathing? Or are you able to breathe through it and, and get into more of a parasympathetic state? Or are you eating stimulants or caffeine or, or different foods that are putting you in sympathetic drive? So being aware of that oxygen consumption rate and then just basic minerals a mineral solution, magnesium, stopping the things that are draining and starting the things that are supporting those, the sort and going from there. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about the vitamin D you said stop. And, and that's all that people are talking about is take your vitamin D. Can you explain? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole other podcast, but I guess let's do the short cliff notes version is vitamin D. There's a lot of different metabolic pathways for vitamin D. And when we look at the 25-OH vitamin D on a blood test, that's our storage form. And that's the, what doctors are looking at. And there was a first part of a study that shows that optimal vitamin D levels increase a person's immune system. They did a four-year follow-up and found that that wasn't the case. And they found that people that had low vitamin D storage, which is what we're talking about, 25-OH, and had, were both healthy and unhealthy. So healthy populants, people and unhealthy people had low, when we say low in the twenties to say 25, they had low vitamin D 25 OH as well as healthy people. The difference between the ones that were really unhealthy that had low versus the ones who were healthy and had low 25 OH was the healthy, unhealthy people had high 125 OH, which is their active form. So when we're not even measuring the active form, we don't have an, a, a dog in the race, if you will, to say that their low st storage is problematic. You need to know their active form first. On top of that, the vitamin A receptor or is, is the nuclear receptor, the receptor that allows the 
125-OH Actiform to get D inside the cell is vitamin A-based. And when your 25-OH storage form is too high, it blocks the absorption of vitamin A. So you can't get the active form inside the cell with no vitamin A. And that's, you're looking at the wrong, you're looking at the wrong area and it's calcifying when you have too much D. So it's a very controversial subject and there's plenty of research to back it up. Um, But there's a lot, just like there's, you know, nefarious things for putting iron in our foods. There are nefarious things for people promoting vitamin D as the, you know, end all be all. So I feel like the vitamin A is like if I was Bill, sorry, um, what's his name? The the guy from Apple that, that died recently. It, you know, I feel like that's vitamin A is like a stock right now where if I were telling you about Apple stock and it's going to be an important computer competitor to the PC computer, that's how vitamin A is. And hopefully at some point as doctors and as medical institutions, as health professionals, we'll start putting more emphasis on vitamin A. But just like ceruloplasm, if you ask a doctor what the importance of vitamin A is, they'll look at you with bewilderment. Mm. Yeah. I think it's so important for people to be careful about just kind of throwing supplements around. I think especially with the pandemic, we've seen so many people just overloading vitamin D and zinc, which is a huge (laughs) offsetter of copper too. But I see people that are just taking like 50 milligrams of zinc a day through the pandemic. So PSA, please be careful with your supplements, work with a practitioner, have your levels checked. Yeah. I mean, some people really need it, but definitely test first. (laughs) And and not to say you shouldn't get it from foods because I'm all for foods, but when you're getting it synthetically, you got to ask or check if it's actually, that's the thing. If you're looking at all of the the symphony as a whole and figuring out if you're getting better or worse, then you're not basing it on, oh, your 25 OH is 20 and it needs to be 70 or 80. And ironically, I remember when I didn't know about this and I would have someone come to my office at 25 OH at 25. And I would say, you need to get this up to 60 and 70. Their doctor would get mad at me and tell me, no, this is fine. So it's funny how it's changed over the years in terms of now traditional doctors are on board the vitamin D train of the higher, the better. If they do their research, they'll see that that's not the case for the storage form or getting it from food or from sun. So getting it from organ meats, cod liver oil, going out in the sun, making sure your vitamin A levels are are healthier. Because ironically, the lower your storage the better your A, the more your active D is getting inside the cell. And you should be outside anyways. So I'm not, just let's not mistake, I don't think vitamin D is the villain. I think synthetic forms measuring your storage 25-OH status is the wrong way to assess how healthy you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's always more to the story, I will say. So thank you for breaking all that down. Oh my goodness, it's, I think there's even more to unpack. But if anyone wants to learn more about what you're doing, can you maybe share real quick where people can follow you and learn more? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So on 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 Facebook, I have a, a, a group called The Truth About Adrenal Fatigue. That's And I really would like to expand it because as you see, we're, we're kind of getting more into just longevity and, and metabolic health. Um, Dr. Joel Rosen is a work in progress, but that's going to ultimately be the main site that I go to. 
But for now, I have the truth about adrenalfatigue.com. And then, of course, just Dr. Joel Rosen on, on my socials. But thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes for everyone today so they can definitely stay tuned and follow and learn more. And Joel, before we let you go, we want to ask one final question. If you can give our audience one final piece of advice, something they can start doing today to optimize their health. Okay. So the best, the best thing that I can think of that they could optimize their health. So for me, you know, I was an anxious kid and I was an introvert and I was very shy and I would get a dry mouth if there was a pretty girl that I wanted to talk to, or if there was a presentation and I had to talk out loud. And I think that we fear more of the what's not going to happen than the reality of what happens. And, and we, we have this, whether it's a panic or angst or just unrealistic expectations of something's not going to go our way. And I think there's a lot of wrapped into that. There's confidence, there's nutrition, there's balancing your glucose, there's breathing. But ultimately, if you could be aware of when stress is happening in real time, and I'm sure you guys got this with trying the brain tap and, and realizing how much it slows your mind down. And when someone honks at you in, in traffic and like, because I didn't press the accelerator as soon as the green light turned on, or they, they go ahead of you really quickly so that they can turn right, but there's no one behind you for miles. It just, to me, it makes you slow down in real time and, and makes you realize that what's the rush and it, it, it makes you more grounded. So I, I would say being aware of the real time presentation of stress and stressors and how it impacts you chemically in the body. Cause I think you guys would both agree. It's that reconnection to your physiology that makes you have the best health outcomes and knowing when you eat crappy, you feel it and it wasn't worth it. And you had a couple drinks and it's like, okay, I'm not going to do that for a little bit, or you're studying too much, or you're working too hard, or you're not getting fresh air, or you're ruminating about things. I think it's being in tune with that in real time and being able to modulate that and control that from going out of overflowing. I think that's probably the best thing that you can do. And that really comes down to awareness and, and being aware of the impact things are having on your body versus what's the complicated stuff that we talked about today. I don't get it or the iron thing or the copper thing or the vitamin D thing. It's just knowing your body and being aware of how stress impacts it at a, at a real time level and having the power to modulate that both psychologically, mentally, physically, so that you're grounded and you're like that badass Buddha 24 seven. I guess that's a long answer, but that's the way I would look at it. Badass Buddha. That is the goal. (laughs) Well, I used to be that angry driver that would speed around people. When I, when I had, you know, my quote unquote adrenal fatigue, I was that road rage person. So yeah. When you're more grounded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I really appreciate that advice. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.
This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.